welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to adventurers. episode... Hey, well, uh, oh, what are we doing? Yeah. You would think after 65 episodes, we'd have this down, Patrick. Uh, do you want to do it? <clears throat> no, it's all you, please. <laughs> All right. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 65 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And today, this episode, we've got a bunch of recent adventures, including Heroes of Arcadia, Cat in the Box, Mantis Falls, Herbaceous, and Dead Man's Draw. We've got an 8-bit breakdown of The Hunger. Time Warp's going to take us back to Black Orchestra, last year's review. But stick around. We're going to be talking about an upcoming Kickstarter in our Adventures on the Horizon segment. We're going to wrap things up today with Davy Jones Locker, The Kraken wakes hey thanks so much for having us be a part of your day what's going on scott it's summer and summer basically means that there are no rules to your time so i've just been running around like crazy i haven't had enough time to really play a lot of deep games and it's starting to affect me i hear that it's definitely a light game season we did our fourth of july party over with the old lobster group and I took over Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. It was a smash hit with them. <laughs> but it's like, I really want to play something deep. And here we are doing Taco Cat Narwhal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great game. Not saying that it's bad or anything. But yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's just something you want to sit there and get your brain going over a deep game. And oh, I mean, I'm hoping we'll get a chance to do that at our next meetup here coming up. What is it? Next Sunday, the 17th. Uh, no, by the time this airs, it already happened. No. Well, then. I hope we had was fun at the meetup time. last week. <laughs> Editor's note. Sometimes it's really hard to keep track of the time. It's going to be this coming Sunday. If you're listening the day that this goes live, this coming Sunday, come join us at the vault in Greensburg. We're going to have a good time. Scott, what do we got? Uh, we don't do news, but we do like to highlight some things. What's uh, What's coming up? Well. Ivion. It launches Ivion. on Ivion. Why do I always mis- mispronounce things? You know what? I, I guess I don't do. know. It could be Ivion. I didn't ask them, but I think it's Ivion. I V I O N. We'll just go with that. Yes, yes. Launches on August 7th. And Moonrakers, the big box, plus the Titan expansion is live on Kickstarter now. We loved having Moonrakers, having a great time playing that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one there was one of those games where. Yeah, let's play together. Let's have a good time. Let's cooperate. Oh, by the way, I just beat you. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> lots and lots of fun. For Ivion, that's one that we talked about was back in episode 62, the Meeples and Monsters episode. That's one that I had to, that I had played recently and you hadn't. Mm-hmm. You'll remember that's the uh, sort of arena combat style. I likened it a lot to Unmatched, but it works with the terrain. Keep your eyes out for this Kickstarter. If that's, uh, if that's your jam, I think you're going to like Ivion. Well, one of our favorite games, and hey, you got to always throw this out now. It's it's one of those things that has to come along with the name of the game. Summit, Trey Parker's favorite game, oh, um, yes, yes. is coming out with a big box now. So a lot of games have the big box comes out with all the expansions in it. Yeah, well, like Moonrakers we just mentioned. Yes, yes. Exactly. Now, Summit is coming out with a new one, the Sanity Expansion. 
Ooh. Now, this one here, the final expansion in the Summit series, Sanity brings another dimension of play of in immersion as players attempt to harness their character's focus while maintaining their sanity, all while trying to survive the world's deadliest mountain. Oh, I could, now, I could get behind that. I, I could. I mean, this is... I've not played it cooperatively, and everyone tells me you got to play it cooperatively. I always play it competitively. And Heck yeah. seeing the Sanity expansion... Can players keep their cool, or will they break down under the immense pressure of the expedition or the competition? With dangers of hypothermia threatening your survival, can you trust your mind, or is it playing tricks on you? I mean, this game was tough enough already. Uh, Connor, what are you doing to us here? <laughs> yeah, I, this is one I definitely got to add on to this. I do have the Yeti expansion. That one's a great time. I haven't gotten to teams yet because I, I hey. I'm We're like pushing each other off the mountain. Yeah, no, none of that. None of that. But yeah, this is going to be a great thing. If people have been holding off waiting to get uh, Summit, this is a great time to pick it up, get everything all in one box. Great game. And that is on GameFound. You can check that out as well. And we did that one, uh, Summit. We reviewed that back in episode 56. If you want to hear our full, complete thoughts in the 8-bit breakdown, get back to episode 56. Scott, can I spoil the last one? Can I do this one? You most certainly can. Oh, you're, this is why you're the king. Clank has Clank Catacombs coming to retail soon. They announced it on the, tw uh, the 28th of June. Whatever. It's got 29 dungeon tiles. This one's going to have a board that gets built as you play. They're going to have it at Gen Con. And next episode, we're going to be talking a bit about games that we're looking forward to at Gen Con. I can't imagine this isn't going to be number one on my list. I love Clank. I want to find out more about Clank Catacombs. Keep listening. I'm a casual Clank player. I mean, I've only played it once or twice, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't have the background in it that you do. But seeing this here, this looks like it's definitely going to be a winner. I have an extensive Clank background. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, let's do some recent adventures. You want to tell me about something you've been playing lately? So, yes. Uh, one of our recent adventures, I got a chance to play Herbaceous, the Pocket Edition. This was designed by... Eduardo Baraf and Steve Finn. I just like saying that name, Eduardo. I feel like I'm Mr. Ward from Fantasy Island or something. And this is published Eduardo. by Dr. Finn's Games. Now, what I like with board games is sometimes you play a game that you can't possibly think how they made a game out of this topic. Thus enters Herbaceous. Now, let's make a game where you plant herbs. It's actually pretty fun. The main idea of the game is that you have three planters, I'm sorry, four planters to plant herbs in. Mm -hmm. Each planter has a different rule, all the same herb, all different herbs, pairs of herbs, and the super special herbs that have extra points printed on them. Each turn, you will do up to two things. First one, optional. You'll plant herbs. These will be the herbs that are laying in front of you in your private garden and the community garden. Now, I'll get more on those in a minute here. You can collect all the herbs you want and plant them in one of your planters. Once planted, that planter is done for the game. The mm -hmm. next action is to plant herbs. Now, this is mandatory. You will plant one plant in either the community garden, an area where anyone can select from, or to your private garden, an area where only you can select from. Now, once you mm -hmm. place a plant in one of those, the second card must go to the other garden. That's pretty okay. much it for oh. the rules. Now, unlike the Colonel, there are only seven herbs in this and not 11 special herbs and spices. <laughs> and 
Yeah, see I, what you did there. I felt dirty just saying that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so you need to plan carefully Ooh. when to harvest and replant your herbs. Somehow, my mother-in-law had this luck of always getting that timing down perfectly. Maybe she has more planning experience. I don't know. Now, this was the pocket edition, so it was a perfect addition to play on the table in their camper. Doesn't take up much space, doesn't overstay its welcome, and it's easy, very, very easy to set up and play. Is this game uh, I'm going to be playing a lot? Uh, probably not, but the ease of transport and the ease of teaching it means it will most likely always be in my travel bag to take with me whenever I'm on the road and just... Have a good time either playing solo, which it has have a solo variant, or playing with three other oh, nice. people. So it's it's a nice little game, a nice little filler if you're just sitting around doing nothing and you're just trying to find something to do for the next 15, 20 minutes top. So that is Herbaceous, the pocket edition. I got to ask about this pocket edition because I looked up Herbaceous while you're talking about it and I can find Herbaceous. I can't find a pocket edition. I know. It is weird. What you do is you actually look up pocket Herbaceous and it'll show up. All it is is just the same card, same everything, but they're just smaller cards. They don't have the the names of the herbs on there. It's just the paintings on them. The paintings are Mm -hmm. nice, like watercolor looking paintings so it's it's a very nice very calming kind of thing there just a nice little game to play and it does look lightweight i'm seeing ages eight and up and the weight the weight is uh no i don't know how much we value the weight rating on bgg but it does give a general sense of how complex the game is this one comes in at a 1.19 hold on you know what this is gonna be we're gonna keep this in the episode i'm curious taco cat goat cheese so herbaceous is a 1.19 (laughs) <laughs> Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza comes in at 1.03. So they're saying that Herbaceous is almost as simple as Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. But hey, that can be a great thing. It, now, this isn't a party game. This is a this is a little strategy game. Yes, yes. it's It definitely has a strategy as to when you want to collect the herbs. You have an oregano in your private garden. There are two other ones mm-hmm. out in the community garden. Do you want to sit there and wait to get a whole bunch of them? Or do you want to grab those and plant them right away as pears? You try and time out exactly when to make your strike. But it's it's a little tricky. And like I said, my mother-in-law just always got right in the right point in time. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, I'll take all of these and get all seven of the spices and get the high score. You done got outplayed by your mother. Yes. <laughs> so needless to say, this is in-law approved. So herbaceous. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. So uh, what have you been playing? I mentioned a couple episodes ago that I was looking forward to playing Heroes of Barcadia at Origins. I did get the chance to play it, and I said, you know what, I'll talk about it a little bit more in an episode or two. Now is that time. This comes from Roll a Crit. This is a dungeon delve where your player piece is a pint glass, and your health is the amount of liquid remaining within. Yes, the drink hoard has been stolen, and you and your fellow adventurers have to delve back into a dungeon to recover it. 
It's official, Scott. I have completed this quest. I have done it. Having encountered the micro brunicorn and fended off the hangogre. Wait, wait. wait. <laughs> I could share more. <laughs> wait, did you just call him a brunicorn? The micro brunicorn. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's one of the baddies. <laughs> uh, and also the hangogre. That one caught me uh, pretty good. I. <laughs> <laughs> I was chuckling all origins. Just anytime I was, uh, anytime I had a moment, I just thought, "Hey, hangover." <laughs> okay, so let's share a little bit more about this whimsical little game. But make no mistake, it's not a little game. It actually takes up some table space, as you might imagine, because your player piece is in fact a pint glass. It's gonna actually eat up some table. At the start of play, everyone's class is in the middle of the table, and dungeon hex tiles are going right. to be dealt to each player. So if there's a stack of, say, 30, everybody, you just start dealing them around face down uh, around the table, and everybody gets to build it out. Like, I'm going to put one here. You still face down, and then somebody else can put one here. So you can end up with, like, a perfectly round hexagonal map, or somebody might branch things off in one direction, whatever. So long as the tiles are touching, any placement is legal. So you have a little bit of variation in how your map's going to be set up from game to game, right? Your player pieces okay. are in the middle. We're off and running. On your turn, Scott, you do one of two things. You can move two spaces that are already discovered. All right. So right. If, if the tile's already been flipped up, you can move twice. Or you can select an adjacent undiscovered tile and reveal it. And that's All going right. to tell you what happens there. If it's a power-up or a portal or anything other than monster, you just move to it. And in the case of a power-up, you get a special card. If it's a monster, you have to fight it, and you move there only if you win. Lose the fight, then you got to put the tile back, face down, take the damage that was listed on the tile, and your turn ends. Fighting right. is simple. Each monster's got a target number on it. You roll a d20. Did you win the fight? Great. You collect the rewards. Typically, they're loot cards, and as you might have guessed, they're usually one-time spells or abilities, like get a plus five on a die roll or teleport to the other side of board. That's that sort of thing. As players defeat monsters and they flip tiles, they're going to be acquiring power-ups. These are basically artifacts that are going to stay with you for the remainder of the game. And the goal of the game is to find the tile that has the big bad. And in order to fight it, you have to have three of these power-ups, these artifacts. So All you right. find it on turn two. Well, you know where he is, but you can't fight him yet. You've got to collect three artifacts. And then the first person that does so collects the artifacts, fights the big bad, and beats him, wins the game. Now... I could be wrong here. With a name like Heroes of Barcadia, mm -hmm. Micro Brunicorn, and Hangover, <laughs> yes. it seems to me that there might be a drinking theme with this. That is, in fact, the theme, and that's what drew me to it initially. I thought, hey, drinking game that looks like it's actually a game. I said it. Anytime I mention this game, it sounds, you know, we, we hear drinking game in the board game community. Oh, right. it's a drinking game. It's something from Spencer's. It's something dumb yeah. that's mindless, that has no strategy. And the goal is to just find a dumb reason to, oh, oh you missed. You have to take a shot. Or, right. The draw for Heroes of Barcadia is that it looked like it's going to be an actual game that just happens to have some drinking involved. So, yes, the, uh, while there is a theme. Really, the theme is, hey, guys, we're going to play a game that has us doing uh, doing a little drinking. All right. 
is this a competitive game or is it all cooperative where you're all going against the big bad? Oh, definitely competitive. Um, sometimes, oh. check this out. Sometimes you're going to flip up a tile and a monster is going to require you to pick someone else at the table. Usually you're mm-hmm. going to pick someone who has power-ups that help win the fight. But you actually pick them and you each get to roll a die. So if it has a target number of 18, we each get to roll our d20. I'm going to pick you because you have a power-up that does good against zombie types of monsters right so Mm -hmm. you get a plus three to your role we both roll and they're shared benefits for us uh but this is a competitive game and at the end when all said and done there is one winner thinking that it's a party-ish game Mm -hmm. and it's a drinking game yeah it kind of makes me think that the components are going to be like uh coasters what were the components like they were like coasters (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> well, put. <laughs> well, the uh, the player glass, let's start right there. Uh, they have solid and dotted lines to notate your 60 health. So from 60 is a solid line down to 55, down to 50, all the way down to an empty glass. Uh, that was clever. And I got to say, plus kudos for thinking ahead. The components are beer. Pr- I, <laughs> I mean, waterproof. <laughs> <laughs> Um, aside from the glasses, which are in fact plastic, uh, you've got tiles and cards that have, uh, like a, I don't know. It's kind of like what chip theory does with their stuff. It's got that like coating to it. They're like plastic. Oh, yes, you know yes. what I'm talking about? Plus you've mm-hmm. got kind of a whimsical cartoony art style. If you want to mesh in art with the components, uh, overall the game has a lovely aesthetic. So did you like it? I'm bringing it all home. Did we like it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing. That's I mean, right now, I'm thinking it sounds pretty good. Well, for what it is, it it was fun enough. Yes, uh, for what it is. Uh, as I mentioned, I think my hope would be that this would be a game first. And while it has a ton more than most drinking games from the local gag gift shop, it does fall short of a hobby game. Considering it's a drinking game, that's that's okay. The gameplay was a lot like Munchkin with a board. When good things right. happen, you get rewarded, which makes more good things happen, and you gain power until you win. Somebody else might roll three times against their first three monster fights and lose them, getting no additional loot cards and just kind of have a failure to launch. Uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic system for non-gamers, but for hobby gamers, that's kind of lame. But, I mean, what, what can we ask for here exactly? I mean, brass with a drinking mechanism, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Actually, come to think about it, uh, with the beer and brass Birmingham, maybe some house rules are in order. Scott, I think my struggle here is that if you're playing with non-gamers, you got to sell them on a dungeon crawl theme. And you're probably playing because it's a catalyst for drinks, but it's just sips here and there. Uh, look, we don't condone irresponsible drinking or anything, but I'd be lying if I said I've never had friends over with the ultimate goal being to get drunk and have a good time. Wait a minute. There's things here. There's trees. There's rocks. There's birds. There's squirrels. Come on. We'll bless them all until we get fresh naked. Join me! Yeah! That's not sip a beer time. That's set them up and knock them down time. You know what I mean? Right. The struggle is that I don't know that this is going to get those casual, non-gamer friends engaged. Now, the bigger problem, I can just enjoy a beer while playing any dungeon crawler or any game for that True. matter. The True. hook of this game, that the drinking glass is your health, for me, it just wasn't enough to justify the game that it was attached to. If I have a group of hobby board gamers together for game day, we're going to play something really good and we'll have Mm -hmm. our drink off to the side of the table. Right. Yeah. Clever names, thoughtful development, and an honest to God step up from basically every, every other drinking game. But unfortunately for me, I I think this is going to end up on the, the island of misfit games, if you will. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's still it's it was an interesting time to play. And I think it's something where if you have the right people and the right mindset, it's something that could work. Mm-hmm. But it's such a niche, a fine, exactly. tiny little niche for it to fit. We'll call it one of the like, I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad I did it at a con, and I'm glad that I didn't buy the game. You know, I mean, I got to experience the, the game. I there had fun are. with it. I had fun with it. Uh, and so, tangent, why I had the opportunity, two of the people that I was playing with, they're the designers of a game called Familiars and Foes. I, I think oh, yes. I mentioned this. They have horrible adorables or their toy line, and, and they gave us a copy of Familiars and Foes to review. We're going to have this in a side quest probably sometime in August. We'll see if we can't get them onto the show with us. But, hey, if nothing else, got that one out of it. <laughs> Heroes of Barcadia. Good yes. stuff there. I see the next one that you've got on your list. You know, While we're on the drinking theme, pirates do enjoy their fair share of rum. That was my attempt to connect things for Dead Man's Draw. Tell us about it. Oh, yes. Dead Man's Draw. <laughs> it, this is the thing I love. It's designed by... They don't know. What? They it's not listed on Board Game not, Geek? No. Looking at Board Game Geek. Designed by... Not available. Oh. They have no idea. Yeah, I said, 10 minutes. Huh. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Now, this has been published by a number of uh, game companies. Now, my copy was from Mayday Games. You think pirates and push your luck. Mm -hmm. That hopefully would draw you into something like this. This game is an absolute favorite with my nephews, as well as myself. I have a great time with them. In Dead Man's Draw, you're trying to collect cards of 10 different suits and get the highest score possible. Seems easy enough, but did I mention you get secret powers? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. An anchor will provide you with, like, a save spot. Mm-hmm. So you put the anchor down. If you bust, or whenever you bust, you flip over a similar suit. So if you flip over a chest, then another chest, you bust. You lose everything. So how are we flipping these over? Let's let's start there just to give the visual. Every, All we right. played this you together. Have a stack of cards. Yeah. And you will take the top card. You will flip it over right next to it. Boom. Mm-hmm. You then decide, do I want to take another card or do I want to just stop? Well, you take another card. Keep on going or do you want to stop? When you stop, you take all the cards and put them in front of you in the separate stacks of each suit. It's all coming back to me now. Yes. So, whenever you flip over an anchor, that's going to be a save spot. So, if you flip over four cards and you're thinking, "Mm, I don't know, flip over that fifth card, it's an anchor. All right, that gives me a save spot. You flip over another card, you had a hook earlier on, well, that's another hook. You bust. You only lose the cards that are to the right of the anchor. Anchor's your saver, yeah. And everything before that. So you're good shape there. So you stack those out. Maybe you draw a cannon that allows you to shoot and destroy the top card of someone else's stack. So someone has a Kraken on the other side with a point of seven. Well, guess what? You don't have that anymore. Boom! You kill that Kraken. Speaking of the Kraken, perhaps you draw the Kraken. Release the Kraken! Well, the Kraken makes you draw two more cards and you must play them. So if I'm already four cards in and I flip over a Kraken, I go, oh, crap. Because I gotta do card number five and six, and it's pretty likely that I'm gonna have a duplicate. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Or 
You could flip over an oracle that allows you to peek at the next card and decide whether or not you want to play it or just stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, once the last card is drawn, you stack all your cards together by suit and count only the highest card in those stacks. Okay. That's it. It's an easy game to pick up. My nephews picked it up immediately. I mean, they know the rules better than I do. I always have to go back and remember, okay, what's the hook? Wait, what's that one, dude? Well, the hook's the one that steals from someone else, doesn't it? That one's brutal. Oh, that one's Well, no, a hook allows you to pull something from your own stack and do it. Uh, Um, Well, there was a way to steal somebody else's, wasn't there? Yes, that one is a saber that comes out. Uh, That thing is nasty. Yes, so there's all sorts of different things that you can do to do with this. Now, it's an easy game to pick up and play. Great game if you have young kids at a family get-together. They will love this. What makes this game have a great staying power is that it gives you a ton of traits that will change the rules of the game slightly. Mm -hmm. It could be where you are going to add all the cards that you have instead of just the top card. It may be that whenever you play a Kraken, you have to flip over four cards instead of just two. It also gives you characters that you can play as a character. I love that. And it gives you so many different ways to play this game. It's such a simple game. Once again, it's a small game. It's a great game for kids, for adults, everyone. You can always laugh and have a great time playing Dead Man's Draw. You know what this one does is it gives you the opportunity to find little combos. Like the saber is the one that steals, right? So you can set yourself up where, okay, I got a saber. I'm going to steal your card. Next round, you flip up a hook. Oh, I get to bring back one of my cards that I've already taken. I'm going to bring back the saber that I used last time. And now I'm going to play this saber and I'm going to steal another card. Like there are little combos that you can find all throughout the game for a simple pressure luck system. All the little variables with the card powers, that alone, never mind the player powers, that alone makes for a really (laughs) good time. This is playable by little ones, but my goodness, there is plenty of meat on the bones. I We we broke this out at SCG. We played it with Mike uh, when you came over for Mm -hmm. games. That was already like three months ago. You believe that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm always happy whenever you break that one out because it's never a bad time. And you know what? I don't even win. I don't think I've ever won that game because I'm one of those people. I get – if I have seven cards down that are all different, the odds of the eighth being a bust are like 90%. And I'm like – well, I should try still. There's a 10% chance I got to be that guy. I can't help myself. It has that that pressure luck, but oh, what what a game. It is so strategic for being so simple. Love it. Absolutely love it. And hey, for something that's designed by we don't know, they did a good job. So I don't know who you are. Pat yourself in the back. Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release, only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk, just for you, is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. 
You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. Scott, I want to talk a little bit about Mantis Falls. This is one that we had the oh, chance to yes. play together. So I'll give a, a quick rundown, and then we can kind of chat about some of the stuff that we uh, liked or didn't like uh, about it. Mantis Falls <laughs> is designed by Adrian Carryhard and published by Distant Rabbit Games. I figure now is a good time to bring this one up. We've been playing this one for a while, but, you know, it's turning up in Barnes & Noble. Yes, it is. Yeah. This is a two to three player deduction game. It funded on Kickstarter back in 2020. Let's start here. What's up with self publishers making company names that are entirely ridiculous? <laughs> this is Distant Rabbit, Panda Cult, Moon Crab, First Fish. <laughs> if everybody's trying to stand out by having something funky, then none of them stand out. Uh, anyway. Anyway, Mantis Falls. The theme here, something has occurred that was not meant to be witnessed, and now your number one concern is getting out of the town of Mantis Falls alive. You're told there will be another witness traveling with you, but are they really who they say they are? <laughs> so we have a hidden role game and the roles are basically shown on three cards witness witness and assassin they're dealt at the start of play at random so in a two-player game there's always going to be at least one witness but the second card will be either a witness or an assassin so if scott if you're dealt a witness card you don't know is pat a friend also a witness or is he an assassin i'm wondering the same thing because those cards are hidden now, that is the meat of the deduction of the game, and throughout card play, you're going to be able to figure out, or hopefully, figure out what the other player is. Now, at the start of the game, each player's screen-printed maple starts in the bottom right of the board, which, by the way, is made of cloth, which I thought yes. was a pretty nice touch. Yeah, it definitely was. Now, the aim of the game is to weave your way through three rows of four cards each until you've arrived at the top left space of the board, which represents departing Mantis Falls. If both players are witnesses, then to win, they both need to escape. If one player's the assassin, they got to make sure that the other player doesn't escape. And that's the gist of the game. How do we go about doing it? Mechanically, this is a game of card play. Each player's going to have a hand of cards to do various things like healing yourself, using a phone booth, hopping a bus ride. Primarily, though, you have to work together with your cards to resolve each round's random events. So you recall, Scott, start of a round, you flip up the events. Uh, mm -hmm. And it might flip up saying basically someone is chasing you. Together with the other player, you need to address that event. And sometimes that means reaching a certain spot on the board this turn, like you got to end your turn two spaces further ahead. Or oftentimes it means dealing damage to this unknown chaser downer. But they spiced up this card play a little bit by adding five suits to the cards. And this will allow you to chain cards together. Like normally I can only play one card. But if I mm -hmm. play cards of the same suit, like we'll say Lilac, then I can play as many as I want. Two, three, four, etc. Now, they're not always going to be beneficial at the time that I can play two, three, or four, but it is an option. And frankly, it can lead to some really cool turns where you get a big, big payoff. Little example. <laughs> when we played last time, you found the gun. You remember this? You found the gun. Oh, but yes. It doesn't do anything until you have bullets to go with it, and they're in the same suit. Right. So you you, you mm -hmm. have to find bullets and it's kind of like building up for this big payoff. 
point is the bulk of the game is in the card play, and the cards do a wonderful job of evoking the atmosphere of the game. Now, I forgot to mention, both players play cards on a player turn to address the event, and the cool thing is that the cards are played face down, giving the assassin, or the increasingly unnerved witness, an opportunity to surprise hit the other person. So if we're just, okay, I'm going to play uh, one card face down, another, you can't see what I'm doing and then respond to it if I'm trying to jump you, you know what I mean? Right, right. All in all, I thought this was a fantastic game for two players. Uh, the gameplay, the card play, it might take a game to completely understand it. But once you understand the mechanisms, this game evokes suspicion on literally every turn. And boy, I tell you, it's especially awkward when you're the witness, you're about to escape, but you're given that chance to kill the other player before you do. <laughs> Whoa, man, you really got to think, okay, is he an assassin? I could kill him now because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of here. I might have to stay on this space for a couple turns. When you hit the very end of the road, you get to draw a special card. And one of them says, like, you can deal seven damage to the other player, which oftentimes is going to kill them. Boy, you got to think about it, don't you? Yeah, definitely. This is one that I think the card play sometimes, it's a little bulky for the amount of time that's in the game. Mm-hmm. Like I said, with getting, you said, getting the gun, it took me forever to find a bullet. <laughs> I feel that it almost made it too difficult to the, to the point of I'm losing interest. Oh? Starting out, I mean, yes, I am hooked. I'm absolutely hooked. This brings the whole idea of like a Humphrey Bogart noir type of movie in your head. Oh, you can uh, hear the rain downpouring outside when you're playing even if it's you can a hear beautiful the clip, sunny day clip, clip, clip of yes. someone walking behind you uh-huh. but as you get down to like the third road you're just like i've been trying to find a bullet <laughs> for the longest time i just want to throw this gun at the person I yeah at some point i'm just gonna beat it. them with the gun that was the my biggest takeaway that upset me i started out loving this game by the time I got to the end of it, I was just like, I am so frustrated with what <laughs> I'm drawing. That's going to do absolutely nothing to help me. So I don't know. I, it's something that I would definitely play again. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to try and go through and play it again and just see if I was playing it wrong, which is very, very possible. Or really kind of dig in there a little bit, get my fingernails dirty and figure out exactly What is the best type of strategy to play this game? It's very clever, wonderfully put together. The components, everything put in little bags. Yeah, uh, it comes with little burlap sacks in it. Oh, it's fantastic presentation, truly. I mean, they really thought of everything to really make the theme just drip out of this box. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful production. Well, speaking on the production... yeah, I don't think I told you this. The sleeves that I put on the cards, they come in the box. Not oh. only do you get the little burlap sacks, the game's got like four or five modules, each one with its own little burlap sack. So you can tuck all the components, the cards, and if there's an extra piece, you can put them all into that little burlap sack and pull the drawstring, and it's sitting in there for when you want to play it. There's also sleeves, so that every card is sleeved <sighs> as well. And this is one that I feel definitely needs more coverage on it and more people to learn about this game because it's it's not really like any other game you play. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Werewolf and things like that that's a party game and the deduction type, type of game. 
but that's with a whole bunch of people and no one really cares. This one here, two to three players, you are really, really second guessing the makeup of the person you're playing against there. And it's true deduction. It's based on what they're doing. It's not social deduction where you just start babbling at each other. You mm -hmm. actually have to read the signals of what they're playing and make, make a real decision based on it. Normally, I'm not a big fan of deduction games. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I mean, I do some have some things that hold me back from really loving this game, but I really do appreciate what they put into this game and how it comes together. It, it yeah, more people need to check out Mantis Falls. I gather I like this one a pinch more than you do, and that's quite all right. I think the frustration in the card play, I think I actually enjoy that, the having to wait because it does sort of. It means that like things are simmering. Like you, you gotta wait. You gotta wait. Oh, can I find it yet? Yes, I got it. Boom, big play. Like, like I, I get an excitement built up. Whereas I think on on the other hand, in your game, and it was especially long for you trying to find a bullet. It did hit the point of frustration. I wasn't in your especially shoes, so whenever, I, I wouldn't know. Especially whenever someone, um, yes. This is good audio. I'm pointing at Patrick right now. Gets on a freaking bus. (laughs) Hey, I was a witness. No, the first time we played, I was an assassin. The second time we played, we were both witnesses, right? No, no, I was an assassin. Oh, really? Well, I was trying to kill you. I was right to get on that bus. Space. Yes. So you might be wondering, adventures. what happens if there is a third player? Uh, what happens is there are two active players and one person will sit out and that will rotate as gameplay progresses. And that might sound like, a, oh boy, that's a downtime bummer. But honestly, that's your chance to pay close attention to the other players trying to figure out who's who. And it's the chance to start babbling and pointing like, <laughs> no matter what they do, you put your figure in their face, you go, ha, ah, you're healing yourself. You're an assassin. Ha, you're healing the other player. You're an assassin. You know what I mean? That's where you get to start having some fun with it too. But that's how the three player works. Do keep your eyes out for this one. If you enjoy deduction games, uh, but you typically don't have the crowd for it, this one works with two to three. And Scott sounds like you're willing to play it some more. And adventurers, I really enjoyed it. That's Mantis Falls. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code Level up. This next one you have is one that I'm really upset that I did not get a chance to play at Origins because coming back from it, now then, everyone and their brothers talking about Cat in the Box. Yes, this is designed by Munayuki Yokuchi. It's a 2022 game from Hobby Japan and in the US from Bezier Games. Cat in the Box. I mentioned this one post-Origins. This had a ton of buzz there as they had a very limited supply. And as soon as the hall opened, there was a line of folks ready to grab a copy. And I think they sold out within 20 minutes each day. But to be quite frank, within two... Frank? To be frank? Yeah, yes. frank. I'm being frank now. <laughs> you are. Well, to be Patrick, they had the line within two minutes that had more people in it than copies. So 
they sold out within two minutes as far as I'm concerned. Name of the wow. game evokes a memory of going to my buddy's house to show them Vindication. I had just shown up and I took out my deluxe gloriness of Vindication to show them. Mid-game, we're playing and I look over and there is Jeremy's cat sitting in the lid of the box doing that scratchy thing that they do before they lie down. So, yes, if I ever go to sell my copy of Vindication, it has cat scratches lining the <laughs> inner box <laughs> lid. Doesn't bother me, but go figure. Scott, what? You have two cats. Why do they like boxes so much? I don't know, but it works out beautifully. Whenever I'm on my game top or playing a game, mm-hmm. Bartok jumps up there and just becomes like this little furry kaiju knocking pieces around. Nice. Well, you hurry up, you grab a box, stick it in the corner of the table, boop, right in he goes. According to Purina, it's simple. The box acts as a hiding space where Mr. Whiskers is hidden from predators. So, uh-huh. like, yeah, simple. Okay, let's talk about what's uh, in the box uh, other than the cat. The game box. Cat in the box. This is a trick-taking game, which, as we know, means players are going to be dealt a hand of cards. One one card will be played, and other players have to follow suit if possible. So what is the hook with it this time? This being the 878th trick-taking game in existence. First of all, the cards aren't suited. They just have numbers. So in a three-player game, uh, for example, the deck is 30 cards, five of each number from one to six. So simple mm-hmm. set to work with. They don't have yep. their suit and they're just numbers, as I mentioned. However, when you play a card, you call out the suit, blue, green, yellow, to declare the suit. All right. So if, if I right. want to play a four, I can say I'm going to play four and the suit are the colors. I'm going to play a blue four. Everybody else plays a card from their hand, also calling out blue, unless they opt to trump by playing a card and declaring it red. Now, that leaves some vague details, I know. Uh, wait, that doesn't work. Well, you're right, Adventure. Uh, let's get to the other puzzle piece. The game has a small board with little insets in it in the middle of the table. And in our three-player game, for example, it's the four colors, blue, yellow, green, and red, each with the numbers one through six in a row off to the right. If I lead with a three and I declare green, I put one of my player markers into that inset slot. For the okay. rest of this round, no one can play a three in green. Oh. You see where this is going? If the other two players follow with, say, a green one and a green five, half of the green row is now full. Oh, wow. Breaking Trump's pretty cool, too. Uh, let's suppose that the play I just mentioned happened, and now we're on uh, round two. A green four and a green six are played, and the third player isn't holding any ones because, remember, we've, we've been putting our markers into that row, and the only thing left available, if you're going to play green, is a one. Well, that player doesn't mm-hmm. have a one. So they can't just play it and be like, okay, I'm in green. Effectively, they're going to have to break Trump. But in doing so, they put a marker from their personal player card to show that they can't play anything green anymore. What I mean by that is everybody along with that board in the middle, everybody also has a little card off to the right. And it's got the four colors, each with a little inset slot. Once you say, okay, I'm not going to follow suit. You've got to put a marker in there to say, not only am I not going to follow suit this round, I will not be declaring green for any of my plays for the rest of the round. Make sense? Oh, wow. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, so excellent system for trick-taking that honestly changes the way you have to think within the system. You know if you've played hearts or if you can manage spades, euchre, 500, this is different and it's going to change the the mindset here while staying comfortably within good old familiar trick-taking. But Cat in the Box also does a couple other things. It has a bid system at the start of the round. You sort your hand and you simply bid on how many tricks you think you can win. One, three, or four. 
Now, each trick that you win is worth a point. But if you hit your bid target exactly, you remember those player pieces that are covering spaces right. on the central board? If you hit your bid exactly, if I say I was going to win uh-huh. three tricks and I did win three tricks, I get to look at that central board where all of my player pieces were placed and the largest connected area, I get to score that many points. So if I win four tricks, oh. I will get four points. And if I have a clump of five player pieces that are all interconnected, I'll get five bonus points on top of it. So while some people oh, might wow. call that, oh, it's area control, well, not really, but it is incentive to play certain numbers that are next to what you've already played. Dude, holy cow. This messes with the brain too, because suddenly you're caught up in trying to group pieces together and you can probably compete in the game without micromanaging your pieces, but what a neat way to change how you value each play. It almost makes me feel like it's a combination of a trick-taking game with Sagrada. Yeah, where you okay. put in the dice in certain places, and once they're in there, they're done. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a mixture of both of those. And both of those, I, I mean, I love Sagrada. I love trick-taking games. Oh, man, I really got to check this one out. Now, normally, uh, I think trick-taking, I think simple. And honestly, this is. I know that was a lot of information, but there is one more rule that needs to be brought up, and that is a paradox. See what see what they did Ooh. there? I said that uh, there's five cards of each number, but there's only four slots on the board. What if I'm mm-hmm. stuck with – and when I say four slots on the board, yes, each, each row. Green has one through six to the right of it, but there's only – one red, two, one green, two, one blue, two, and one, what's the other color? <laughs> Yellow, two, uh, right? Yeah. So there's only four slots available for twos, right? Right. So what if I'm stuck with a three, a four, and a five in my hand, but all of the threes, fours, and fives are covered, thus I can't make a play? That causes right. a paradox. I score zero points and the round ends immediately. Even if other people oh, were looking wow. to still go. I think of what this does to the other players' potential bonuses. If they were one trick away from cashing in, they're going to miss out. So maybe I just hit my target, but I'm worried I'm going to win more tricks than I want to. Maybe I can force someone into a paradox or you know, try and get them to, to bust oh, wow. out. Exactly. That's a whole nother level of play. And that is honestly, that's a minor rule. It might sound a little convoluted hearing it you know, in audio form. This game is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I mentioned last episode or maybe two ago that it has enough meat on the bones to maybe be a potential review game for to, for holding down an episode, maybe sometime in the fall, Scott. I, I know you love trick-taking. I know you're going to be obsessed with this game, and I'm sure we'll be able to get a full <laughs> episode about it. That sounds fantastic. I look forward to that. So, Cat in the Box. Scott, I was delighted this week to get an email from teacher Ryan. He wanted to share some audio. So what do you say we get in the microphone? Sounds perfect to me. Hello there, adventurers. And hello, Patrick and Scott of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. It is I, teacher Ryan. Listeners of your podcast know me through that name, but my actual full name is Ryan Clements. Not that it matters much, but either way. I also need to give a shout out to the king because his birthday just passed. So happy belated birthday, my liege. We'll have to celebrate the next time we meet. I'll bring the mead. Now, I was grateful enough to see you guys in person at Origins and hang out with you for a while, but now Gen Con is on the horizon and I shall see you again. We will ride through the halls and wave our banners for the Level Up Board Game Podcast shall conquer the con. 
Anyways, I'm really excited to see all the games and buy all the merch, at least as much as I can carry in a small carry-on luggage bag for my flight. Mostly, though, I get to hang out with people who enjoy the same hobby as I do, and that's what makes me the happiest. I'm sure you're looking forward to Gen Con as well and have a group of games that you're looking forward to seeing, and I actually have my list right here. It's a big list, but I thought I'd talk about the three top ones that I am highly anticipating. First up is Starship Captains from Czech Games Edition, or CGE for short. Now, if you're a fan of Star Trek, then you have to check out this game. You play as a newly promoted Starship Captain. Hey, imagine that. To be honest, though, I haven't looked much into this one, but it appears to be an action selection game where you do Star Trek-y stuff based on the colors of your crew members and use them to select actions, and the colors also matter for the missions that you go on when you're traveling in space. Pieces look great, and the art just looks awesome. It really makes you feel like you're reading a Star Trek comic, but that's definitely one of the ones I'm definitely looking forward to is Starship Captains. Another game I want to check out with you is Fall of the Mountain King from Burnt Island Games. I love my copy of In the Hall of the Mountain King, and in that game, you're trolls who have returned to your mountain home decades after the Troll Gnome War, and you're trying to dig out a passage back into your ancestral home. Well, in Fall of the Mountain King, it takes place during that Troll Gnome War. It's an area control game, and the resource action system is quite unique, and it seems Burnt Island Games does unique things like that really well, if I'm honest. Uh, they did it well for the Hall of the Mountain King with their cascading resource pyramid, and they did it really well here, too. In this game, you draft and use these square-shaped cards, and each card is divided into a 2x2 two two grid, each grid square having an action icon on them. And you start the game with a 3x2 in your tableau. Each round, you're going to place one of your square cards on your tableau so that at least one grid square of that card overlaps one of the ones on your tableau. I'm going to say tableau like five more times, I'm sure. <laughs> Either way, uh, during that round, you'll take actions based on how many of the action icons match in a group. So you're trying to maximize a round by grouping together those action icons so that you only need to activate it once to do a large action. It's really quite interesting, and I'd like to try it in person because I playtested it before with Burnt Island Games on Tabletop Simulator, so that was great. Anyway, so that's a Fall of the Mountain King from Burnt Island Games as my second choice. Okay, guys, this last one is the big one I've been wanting to check out ever since they announced it, which really wasn't too long ago, honestly. They announced it June 28th, and it's going to be at Gen Con already, and this is Clank Catacombs. Not only am I anticipating this highly, but my wife is too. It's her favorite game to play with me, and so she already told me to take pictures and find out anything I can about it. All the news I have on this game, however, is shown in the trailer. Instead of a fixed board, you get a bunch of dungeon tiles which are randomized, and then you lay them out in a pattern, and there's your dungeon. Now, I don't know if the dungeon size is fixed, I don't know if the tiles are double-sided, I don't know if there are a lot more tiles that you can play with, I just don't know, and the excitement's gotten me all sorts of impatient. There's lots of new cards, and based on what it said on BGG, you can either play with the new cards, or you can play with the cards from the base set. Maybe you can combine them? I have no idea. All I know is Clink is one of my wife and I's favorite games, and I just can't wait to see what Clink Catacombs has in store. Now that I've said my top three, what are your most anticipated games for Gen Con, guys? But before you answer that, I have one more thing to add. 
As with any hobby out there, there are quite a few Facebook groups for that hobby, and in one of them, based on board games, this guy named Patrick randomly asked for someone to help them learn about a new board game that just came out on Board Game Arena at the time called Carnegie. Having played it about four times myself before and having nothing to do that day, I responded with, I can teach you. From there, we messaged each other in direct chat, set up a time, and when it came to time to play, we used the voice function on BGA to play it. It was a great time, and it was really nice to have a conversation with him. And you really seem to enjoy yourself with it, Patrick. Um, and from there, you thanked me, and it was definitely my pleasure to help someone else learn a game that I enjoyed so that they can enjoy it. It's why I do what I do. Well, Patrick, you may not know it or remember it, but it was on July 14th of last year that you and I spoke to each other for that very first time. And so, happy for anniversary, my dude! I'm looking forward to seeing you at Gen Con and to all your listeners. Enjoy and happy gaming. Well, thank you, Ryan, both for your input here on those games. And thank you very, very much for the birthday wishes. It, it truly means a lot. Thank you so very much. You know what? That reminds me, Scott. I didn't wish you happy birthday. <laughs> so, so happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm at that creepy prime number age once again. Mm. And it's all right. I'll just throw it out there. 53 is just an ugly number. Oh, man. I didn't realize you were that old. I'm going to have to find a new co-host soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm on the declining part of the hill now. Thank you, Ryan, also for the happy friendversary. I can't believe that was a year ago, and I think you mentioned it in the audio. The game was Carnegie. He just randomly said, yeah, let's play. And uh, as it turns out, Scott, I know you can't go to Gen Con, though you have plenty of things you're looking forward to. Ryan's going to be hanging out with the old Pittsburgh crowd. He's going to be in the hotel with us, so I'm sure Ryan and I will have a blast at Gen Con and tons of things to share. Listeners, we invite you. Next episode will be our looking ahead to Gen Con episode. If you want to tell us what's got you all amped up, all you got to do is go to the website and click join the adventure. It gives you some helpful hints for how to go about recording audio, but it's quite simple. Most home computers can do it. I can treat it so it'll sound nice and crisp and clean for the air. Tell us about what you're looking forward to. Yes, I mean, you can give us your Gen Con looking forward to, and I'm going to give my Gen Can't list for what's going to be there. <laughs> Enough with me moping about not going to Gen Con. I, thank you, Trumpeter, for bringing me up and bringing my spirits yeah, up. Yeah, let's get happy again. New to the top 100, we've got Sleeping Gods has cracked the top 100 and sits at the 94 spot. Top 10 trends. Uh, we mentioned that it happened last episode. I think Arc Nova was at number nine. It's up two spots mm-hmm. to number seven, bumping down Ooh. Star Wars Rebellion to number eight and Gaia Project at number nine. Highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. The aforementioned Arc Nova at number seven. Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy, number 27 and climbing. The crew Mission Deep Sea keeps on bumping up. It's up to 57. Cascadia continuing that slow climb up to 69. And as we mentioned, Sleeping Gods at 94. We've got one birthday to celebrate and it is Keyflower. Nine years. Yeah, and one thing to think about the crew, this was kind of cool. A couple weeks ago, I was at a wedding, and we went to Lake Erie afterwards for the weekend. Mm -hmm. So we went up there. We went to the Environmental Museum Exposition, whatever you want to call it, Uh, uh, up there at Prescott. And in the gift shop, 
they had board games that were kind of environmentally friendly or talked about the environment. They had the crew Deep Sea in there. Oh, Mission Deep Sea in it the gift shop. It was really cool to see that. Oh, that is so pretty awesome. Pretty cool. and, you know, there's a lot of game in those boxes for under 15 bucks, basically. Oh, yeah. Scott, what did 50 Cent do when he was hungry? Uh, what? 58. <laughs> We've got a review. What's the difference between a good joke and a bad joke? Timing. Ah, very good. Speaking of time, what does the clock do when it's hungry? What? <laughs> it goes back for seconds. It goes back for seconds. Uh, anyway, do we have a review game today? Yes, we do. And I've been doing all the walkthroughs lately. You got to do this one. Very good. I will do the one this time for The Hunger. Adventurers, now it's time for us to take a closer look at The Hunger. Designed by Richard Garfield and published in 2021 by Renegade Game Studios, The Hunger challenges two to six vampires to craft their deck, hunt humans, and fulfill secret missions to score points and make it back to safety before daybreak. Whichever vampire scores the most points wins the game. Let's start with some setup. Each player will select a vampire and gets their starting deck of six cards. Two community goal tiles are revealed and each player places their token at the castle to start the game. The castle is not only the starting point, but it is also where players will want to end the game, or at least close to it, in order to be protected from daybreak. The board is comprised of spaces that go further and further away from the castle providing benefits and treasure the further you go, incentivizing the vampires to press their luck a little. Scattered throughout the board are areas where you might collect treasure, digest humans, or perhaps pick up a mission, basically in game end scoring token. Now, this is a deck building game. Your starting deck has basic cards to move about the board and purchase new cards. Movement is pretty straightforward, but let's focus on how to acquire cards. The market is made up of rows, one more row than the number of players. So in a four-player game, there are five rows. Each row has three columns. Cards in the leftmost column cost three, then two, then, yep, you guessed it, one. Each turn, the cards in the market are all shifted on column to the right, effectively becoming cheaper. For that matter, sometimes the final column will start to have multiple cards piling up, so long as cards continue shifting to it without being purchased. On a player turn, you simply draw a three-card hand and carry out any text on the cards. Then add up your movement points and your purchasing power, or in the case of the hunger, your hunt points. After movement, you can spend your hunt points for purchases in the market. The market not only provides additional action cards, but it also contains familiars, who will stay in play, and the humans that you'll be collecting for points. Any cards acquired go into your discard pile, and when your deck runs out, you just shuffle up and recreate the deck to draw from. Simple. After 15 turns, players that have made it back to safety will tally up the points they've acquired from humans they've hunted and missions they fulfilled and the high score is the winner now as always there's more to a game than we go over in a walkthrough in the case of the hunger know that the board is two-sided 
providing an alternate, more difficult board. The human cards can be digested, effectively calling them from your deck while still scoring the points. And finally, the various areas of the board offer a myriad of options. Crypt spaces offer extra missions, or the ship spaces are quicker, but you cannot hunt while on them, etc. Now, let's chat about this game the level up way. It's time for the, uh, yeah, you got it, 8-bit breakdown of the hunger. And what I saw is vampires. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? Yes. You too, preacher? I don't believe in vampires, but I believe in what I saw. Good for you. All right, now that we all agree that we're dealing with vampires, what do we know about vampires? Crosses hurt vampires. Do we have a cross? In the motor home. In other words, no. Wait a second. I mean, just look around. We got crosses all over the place. All you got to do is put two sticks together. You got a cross. Yeah, he's right. Peter Cushing does that all the time. Okay, I'll buy that. So we got crosses covered. What else? Wooden stakes in the heart been working pretty good so far. And garlic, sunlight, holy water. I'm not sure. Doesn't silver have something to do with vampires? That's werewolves. I know silver bullets are werewolves, but I'm sure silver has something to do with vampires. Well, does anybody have any silver? Okay, then who cares? Hey, thank you, Scott, for the walkthrough of today's review game, The Hunger. Scott, is BB hungry? Nah, BB ate. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. Uh, so, we're talking The Hunger, we're going to give it the 8-bit breakdown, as we like to do. We're going to look at 8 facets of this game to tell you as much as we can about it, and wrap it all up with some final thoughts about was it fun, and who's it for. We like to start with bit number 1, the art and the components. What'd you think, King? I love the artwork in the components. It looks great. The vampires don't remind me of the typical Dracula-looking beasts. No, nah, not at all. I mean, some of these are just like vicious-looking monsters. The and, board artwork, and yet it's cartoony. Like let, let's let's it, not yes, give yes. the wrong impression. It's it's definitely cartoony. Like I think that you could play this with a ten-year-old, and it's not going to be like grotesque. Right. That, that's a very good point there. Yeah. And it's very well done. I mean, it really does look beautiful. I love the artwork. The board looks great. It's easy to follow through, easy to play. The only problem I had was the high gloss on the board. Yeah. You have to sometimes move around to take a look at the board because the light reflects off it. So you can't really see it that clearly. Why they went with such a high gloss on it, I don't know. It had to have been an error. Had to have. And they already <laughs> printed up 10,000 boards and they were like, well, we can't go back now. Yeah. But it's a beautiful presentation. Really, really like it. Um, the market board. Oh, God. Whenever I say this now, it sounds horrible. The market board for the people you're going to eat is It's like going to the deli. It's a vampire deli. <laughs> The land that you're playing in, it it's very it, – just a fun it, – it looks like a dark Disney production. Okay, yeah. Grim – and yes, that's a good way to put it. Grim, that, that gives an idea of the sensation of the cartoony artwork. Scott, I'm going to disagree a little bit on the board. I, now, obviously, the board is shiny. You know, we, we've all mm -hmm. – 
I could sit in a lawn chair and sun myself right. with this thing right. on my chest. Uh, but there are a couple other things that I'm going to take umbrage with. And I don't normally use the word umbrage, so I don't know if that means good or bad. But in this case, it means things that I didn't much care for. Dude, there's a ton of little goal tokens that aren't immediately intuitive. So there's a bit of like checking sure. the rules reference. And the locations for digesting humans, they have the symbol on them, but they are tough to make out. Like I have to look and find, okay, where's that little flare delay where I can digest this? Oh, mm-hmm. it's way over there. Oh, where are the other ones? Like I thought that the board and the iconography, like while the board does have like, oh, there's the mountains, the forest, the plains, and that's all that's all cute and like it's drawn well. I thought it was a bit of a mess. I thought it was a really, really busy board that could at times be challenging to determine where things are. You didn't get that, though. You, you No, no. I, I felt comfortable with things there. The fleur-de-lis and those kind of things, that's going to come up a little bit later for me here, though. Okay. Well, let's get into theme and immersion. We've got a theme where we're all out to eat a bunch of humans, get some lunch or late-night snack, and then get back to the protection of the castle before daylight. Simple enough, and frankly, it was executed pretty well. I love that some of the humans do their fair share of drinking. So if you draw them later, it's like they mess with your stomach. <laughs> like like you imbibed a human who was uh, had a blood alcohol con- like they would have blown a 1-9 and it's mm-hmm. making you get a little tipsy, right? I I didn't think it was like the most immersive game. Like there isn't a story being told and frankly barely any stories going to emerge but there are some fun ways to build your vampire's deck and make it yours and feel unique the theme it's present and playful i didn't think though that it was like the main reason that folks are gonna be like, oh let's get that back down again because i want to be a vampire you know what i'm saying what do you right, think theme right. and immersion and i agree with you i mean it is a light-ish game i mean it's not really deep but still it's not one of those things where you need a 37-page tome to take a look at and figure out We'll put out it the on game. the light side of medium weight. It's in the yes. middle somewhere, but it's on the easier side of mid-weight. Right, right. But I still liked I, – I still got the urgency that I needed to get out, get food, and get back to the castle as quickly as, as possible. That was a fun aspect. Now, granted, it could be – you could – add anything into this it could be a space thing where you have to hurry up before the sun comes around the side of the planet and burns everybody Mm -hmm. it could be any sort of timing thing there but being that they went with the theme of vampires and the the daylight coming I, i liked it it was it was a lot of fun yeah it worked pretty well yes now number three complexity not really that complex. I mean, it was a little bit tricky there with uh, figuring out some of the rules. Mm-hmm. Like you said earlier with the floor de lee and all that kind of stuff there, there was a lot going back to the rule book just to double check on things. It was never a point of, we got it down. It's perfect. We're ready to go. So it's not a complex game, but still it, it gave you enough options to make it a little bit different though. So this is a deck builder that you draw three cards per turn, and the cards are going to give you your movement and your spending power. I think that kind of waters down. As long as you can grasp that, you're ready to get going. The complexity, though, I think it's going to find simply in where you where you opt to move and what you decide to purchase whenever you build your deck. You've got some cards that are going to stay with you that give you a regular bonus, and others that are going to give you options when you draw them later on. But nothing's going to – like you were saying, it doesn't get too crazy – I think what you're getting at is nothing sets off a chain reaction of triggers. There's no monitoring a state-based effect. 
it's pretty straightforward, and I, I'll say it again. I think it's on the lighter side of medium weight. Oh, sure. Bit number four, the rule book and learning curve. You learned this. You taught it. What do you think of the rule book? I hated the rule book. <laughs> there <laughs> I said it. Uh, it was short, which I love. And it had examples, which I love. But I, I think it was short because it had some implied rules and some stuff that was a little hard to clarify without using a rules reference or trying to look it up. Uh, I think the big turnoff was that if I needed to find a little rules clarification quickly, it was kind of tough. Mm-hmm. And I think that what got me was like board effects, the well, the cemetery, the chest, the, the crypt, the labyrinth, the FYE, the Dunkin' Donuts, the fire hall. <laughs> like there's so many little things like they could have four or five different references. We've mentioned the Fleur de Lee. There's also like crossed sabers. There's a, a little cross. Humans come in four different varieties, <laughs> if yes. you will. Four different flavors of human. There's there's nobles that have the fleur de lis, for example, and then the military has the cross sabers. Having to find out where those little symbols are on the board, like it's the rule book was fine, I guess, but because the game is a little fiddly, a little clunky with wait, where's that symbol at? What does this one mean? What does this symbol mean? I think that the rule book had a tall task of tying it all in together in a quick, clean way. And in this case, it didn't quite do it for me. Yeah. And being on the learning side of it, it, that was something as well, too. There was a lot returning back to the rule book just to clear things up and and make sure we were doing things correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we played it one time the whole way through, and then we came back and we're like, oh, wait, no, you just have to get back to this area here in order to be safe. And yeah, we, we actually had out. an error in the first playthrough. Yeah, so it's – I think you hit the nail on the head whenever you said that there were a lot of implied rules. So they kind of wanted you to go into this and kind of look at things and expect that you would know what it meant by looking at the board. Where maybe after months and months of playtesting, they knew what everything meant. It didn't come across in the rule book, thus come across in the learning curve for those that didn't read the rule book. And we'll say maybe there were areas where you would expect it to be intuitive where it wasn't. Mm-hmm. That That's a good way of putting it. But this is one that we're reviewing having played. I think you've played it two or three times. I've played it four or five. Mm-hmm. I think that as players get up around play number eight, nine, ten, like it's all going to be cemented in the brain. But we we rotate games enough that that's a hard thing for a game right. to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Where's the meat? Bit number five. We look at where's the meat of the game. And in this case, it's found in a few places. First and foremost, obviously, this is a deck building game. That doesn't just mean trying to find points and combos in the cards available to you. You see, the humans act a lot like a point card in Dominion. That is, they do, many of them, do nothing for you when they're drawn. Mm-hmm. And the game has a three-card hand. That puts a lot of emphasis on the timing of when you're going to start acquiring humans and how many you might want. And it's also going to increase the importance of going to specific spaces to digest them. Right. There are some other areas where decisions are made, like how far from the castle you're going to go or planning your strategy around picking up those bonus markers and the little missions that you can acquire. At its core, though, this is a deck building game, and I think that's where – most of the decision making is going to happen wouldn't you agree yeah that's exactly what i had i mean it's being a deck builder like a lot of deck builders the meat of the game comes from the deck you're creating do you hedge your bets on making a lot of points by hoping to feed on a lot of villagers or do you mm-hmm. hedge your bets on being speedy and getting points at the end of the game making sure you get back to the castle 
having the three card deck, you really need to digest those. God, I'm saying these things and it's so ridiculous. <laughs> digest the humans to get them out of your hand to make your, your deck a lot more efficient. But those sure, areas sure. are few and far between to really get those to use those because with just three cards, you were really forced with the tough decision of, am I going to use them for this? Am I going to digest them? But then if I digest them, I can't do this. You've got a lot of decisions to make in that deck that you've built. A little bit of timing there, too, because the nobles, where you digest them, is very far away. Right. So if you take on a noble human, if you eat a noble human early in the game, it's going to be a long time before you even have the opportunity to digest Definitely. that human. You're probably going to have it gum up your hand at least twice. Mm-hmm. So you might not want to go – maybe go for a villager because they're a lot easier to digest. They're a lot closer to the castle. So is there, there's a timing element there too. Scott, let me ask you this. Uh, you didn't get a uh, – what is it? At the very end of the trail, you get the roses. There's three roses that are yes. sort of like the big reward for – we didn't get there in our games. No. But I'll tell you this too. I played this with Mike a few times. I have never, never seen anyone get a rose. Yeah, it's one of those things where this game I think would – well – We'll go into this a little bit later. Okay, fair enough. How about we go then to bit number six, the replayability and variability, two items that are so often dependent on one another. Not always, but it seems pretty often that when a game has a ton of variables, oftentimes reviewers decide, well, that means it's replayable. We've only got a few variables at play here in The Hunger, namely the cards available in the market at any given time and those missions that you start with, as well as the global missions at the start of the game. Let's not gloss over that first variable, though. This is a deck builder. I don't want it to seem like the market in a deck building game is just a tiny variable. It is massive enough so that entire games are built around the deck building concept, and most of them can be played repeatedly over and over. Basically, this is a game that's different enough, I think, each time that a group that enjoys it is going to keep coming back to it and having enough variation just from that market that it's going to feel fresh each time. What do you think, Scott? Replayability and variability. Give us some thoughts. Yeah, like you said, the variability really comes in when you draw those missions, what comes up. I mean, there could be any number of different missions out there at different times. So that does build in variability. Variability in the deck building. The chances of you making the same deck twice are infinitesimal. Yeah. Uh, there we go. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh. So it's it's very tough to even think that you're going to be making the same deck twice. So there nah, is a lot of variability with that. Replayability, yeah, you're going to replay it, but once again, I got to kind of defer to the next bit to finish up my thought on this one. Oh, boy. So you're uh, you're holding off, and we're going with bit number seven, any downside. Scott, I, I put a little list here, but it sounds like you're uh, you're you're champing at the bit. Chomping? Champing? Or is it Britain says champing, and we say chomping at the bit? Yes. What do you do at the bit? I, I, I'm chewing on it. Anyway. Let's hear some downsides, downsides. One of my biggest downsides of this is that you have a big board. You have a lot of spaces to hit but in the time period that you have to do it the 15 turns or whatever yeah 15 it it never feels like you get to the point that you're ever ever gonna make it to the end of that Mm -hmm. uh, track there so it's already it's like maybe one third of the board is completely useless 
you're going to turn around and have to go back before you even get to that area of the board. That's my biggest downside is that you don't get a chance to really explore the entire thing. Now, okay, granted, you could fair. go and just go crazy with the points and hope that you have a lot of points at the end of the game to offset the negative points you're going to lose for not getting back to the castle. But mm -hmm. um, three more hours, I think, would be something good to add on to it <laughs> just to give you that little. Well, I mean, as far as three more turns, I'm sorry. Three more days. OK, yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Oh, yeah, three more hours, three more turns. Yeah, no, yeah. I understand. In that. order for you to get a little bit further, that would make getting those roses at the very end of the board just a little bit more a factor of trying to get there. Right, right now, right. it's like those are out there and it's absolutely pointless to even try and go for it. It seems futile. Yeah, yeah. So that's my biggest thing there is that it needs probably, I would say, three more turns. And that would hit the sweet spot. That's my biggest downside. Fair point. Fair point. I'll go down this list. And if there's something that you disagree with, you tell me. Number one, the board is shiny and busy. And to me, the graphic design, I thought it was a little bit messy. And I know you already said, yeah, you were okay with the graphic design. Right. We both agreed the board is shiny. Yes. Number two, there are so many different space types on the board. As I mentioned with the well, the cemetery, the labyrinth, and on and on. Man, it's hard to keep all that in your mind. True. Oh, wait, where do I have to go to do X, Y, Z? Yeah, it almost seemed like they had a lot of ideas and they wanted to hurry up and get them out into a game. So they just tossed them all together in one game. Now, granted, they themed them around the vampire thing and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. it, the theme works. But yeah, it, it just seemed like they threw a whole lot of components into one game just to right. get them out there. Number three, anytime someone gets a mission, they pick up the stack of missions in that space and they just have to put all the missions back, retaining one more card than they had. So if I'm holding one mission and I get to pick up a mission from a stack of four, I get to draw all four of them to my hand and I will have to return three missions back to that stack. Doesn't seem like so big a deal, but man, talk about Fiddletown. You, you got to sit there and wait while somebody, you know, I'm going to read this one. I'm going to read this. Can I see the rule book? I need to clarify that yeah, one. Yeah. Boy, that has the potential to be a drag. Number four, the three-card hand is mm -hmm. a mess. This, to me, is is the – if I had to say, well, why – what didn't I like about the game? I would say the three-card hand. And what I mean is this. You kill a human, it's going to gum up your deck. So be it. We've seen that in games before. You killed three humans by, say, turn five, and suddenly there's a pretty good chance that you're going to have two in hand, make for a pretty crappy turn. Or worse yet, maybe your entire hand is human cards and you're basically skipped. For that turn. Maybe you have mm -hmm. a human that gives you one point of movement. Whoop-de-doo. Because the hand is limited to just three cards, even if you're getting cards that work well together, you're trying to build synergies, the odds of seeing them actually combo for you, I thought were kind of slim. Number five, there's <laughs> – go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say that kind of goes into the whole idea of my idea of having three more turns. That Some more chances to synergize. Where even maybe if you took away the three turns and made it a five-card hand, mm -hmm. that could be something there as well. Number five, there's hardly any incentive to get a rose. Not only is it extremely risky, but the amount of points on the rose should be enough that you should all but be guaranteed a win yeah. for having taken that chance. And they're like, you get five points. 
Mm-hmm. You get seven points. They're just – it's like, well, I could just take another turn in a much safer place and get four points instead of going way out there for that thing. Didn't like that. <laughs> Number six and maybe the most condemning is the market. Now, follow me here because I, I know you and I didn't talk about this before, but this this was kind of problematic. Uh, the market. It has one more row than the number of players. So in a three-player game, you have four rows. In a four-player game, you have five rows. And at the end of each round, cards get cheaper. They're going to slide over into the slot. They go from costing $3 from a card in a row to two, and then all the way to one, where they ultimately stop. And frankly, cards will eventually start piling up in the one slot in each row. Now, I've had a couple wins simply by collecting missions and only ever buying actions and familiars, not buying humans. Mm-hmm. And I hover around that little treasure area and I collect some some bonuses as I can. And somewhere around turn 11, you start making your way back to the castle and you spend a dollar and you buy the four humans in the one yeah. slot here. And then the next turn, you spend a dollar and you get the three humans in this spot. And suddenly it's like, oh, I have all these points. I got to buzz around the board. I get to collect all these missions. I did so much stuff and I didn't buy humans to gum up my hand. I think the problem is rooted in that three-card hand because you you just can't gum up your deck. There's actually incentive to just putz around the board and make your big point purchases late. And that felt kind of counterintuitive to what the game wants players to be doing. I Yeah. And the thing is, I listen to what you're saying here, and it all makes sense. And I can understand them all sitting around talking about this, playtesting this game, and saying, this works, this works, this works. But not, they they got so into a mindset of, hey, um, guys, it's Richard Garfield. Just agree with what he says. <laughs> we like Richard Garfield here. We're oh, not, yeah, we're yeah, not yeah, uh, yeah. railing on Richard Garfield. But, but I, I know what you're saying. It felt like, well, just go with what he says. He's, yeah, Matt, he's where they didn't want to come up and go against one of his ideas or anything. They just said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really take the time to pick apart and see just these little things that can make the game just go up another level. Well, let's take it to bit number eight. Was it fun? And who's it for? You want to start this one? Sure. Yes, it was fun. It's a yes, in spite of all the downsides. Yes, I had a all good right. time playing it. Are there ways I can make it better? Sure. Are there ways that I think that a lot of other games could be better? Sure. Mm-hmm. But overall, being a deck builder, moving around the map, I had a good time playing it. I, it there's, I mean, I'm not going to say, no, it wasn't fun for the downsides or anything. No, it wasn't fun because of glossy cover. Yeah, there were there were shortfalls, but overall, it was fun. Who's it for? Now, that's a bit of a tougher one there, because you could say for people who like Clank, maybe they'll like this. For people who like deck builders, maybe they'll like it. With the downsides, it's one of those things where I don't think there really is a person it's for. You got to just bring it out and play it. Whoever it's for, they will gravitate towards it. And whoever it isn't, they're going to say, no, I don't want to play this ever again. So it's not one where you can really predict who's going to like this game. I mean, listen to us talking back and forth with our differences. I mean, we have differences, what we like, what we don't like. And normally Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times the games we like, we both like them and enjoy them. This is definitely one that you can't predict who's going to enjoy this one. 
I'm going to try. I'll tell you about was it fun and who's it for. And in spite of all the downsides, I agree. This is a fun game. Be it a little frustrating with some of the nitpicks. Uh, it's f- okay. So at Level Up, we like to approach our reviews with the was it fun and who's it for because the dirty secret is that way we don't have to outright say that a game is bad or give a superficial <laughs> low. So it gets a two out of ten. We don't have to do that here because The Hunger is a fun game. Players are going to find themselves having some really neat turns and doing some cool things in this cool theme. My problem with it is it simply doesn't do anything that stands out against other games. Now, this is a deck builder. Mm-hmm. Scott, you and I, could we could name 10 deck builders off the top of our head that we like better, huh? Oh, probably, yeah. But this is a deck builder with a board. But again, other games do it and they're better. Yes. The game's kind of clunky. I thought it was kind of fiddly. It has the potential for dead turns. It doesn't incentivize players to actually get the prized rose at the end of the track. There's treasures. I don't even know what the treasures are doing there. It feels like there was an idea for drawing human cards that could be called from your deck while still giving points. And it feels like that idea was fleshed out with, well, let's just put some random treasure spaces. Let's put a rose at the end. I know. Let's throw in some, some mission tokens. And a heavy inspiration from Clank, which is a far superior game. That said, who's it for? <laughs> You're going to like this All one. All right. I sold my copy, actually. And and I think the person who bought it is the perfect who's it for candidate. He had never played Clank. And oh. he's slightly newer to gaming. And he's only ever played like one or two other deck builders. So every little mechanism here that I'm like, well, yes, it does this, but not as good as other games. Well, he doesn't know those other games. So mm-hmm. when we say this is fun, it does a lot of good things. That's all brand new and fresh. Unfortunately, aside from that very specific person, I can't think of who I would recommend it to. I do think it's fun. And honestly, it is. So I'll say that maybe for my recommendation, if you can find a sweet deal on a used copy, I, I don't know, MSRP, this is probably 50 bucks. If you can find a copy for like 25 bucks or something, this isn't going to be the favorite game in your collection, but in spite of what we didn't care for, I think most folks will in fact enjoy yes, the hunger. Yes, that's a good way of summing it up. Let's do a time warp. All right, let's do it. Whoa! As Hitler's grasp on Germany tightens and his maniacal fervor is unmasked, men from the highest levels of the Reich begin to plot his assassination. As the clock ticks and Hitler's ambitions grow, these daring few must build their strength and prepare for the perfect moment to strike. The Gestapo hound their trail, calling these conspirators the Black Orchestra. Will this band of daring patriots save their company from utter ruin before it is too late? Well, Scott, one year ago today, we had the chance to answer that question. Yes. Black Orchestra was our review. How did we feel about it then? Uh, I think we kind of loved that game. Loved it, yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's start here. Have your thoughts changed? Well, I was actually at SCG Hobby uh, yesterday, and I saw uh-huh. that it was up on the wall that they had it for sale. Oh, no. The acquisition <laughs> disorder was real. I almost picked uh-huh. it up. Still to this day, I still talk about it, about the last time we played, you, me, and Tom, 
we were getting down the last minute. We had the three of us. We had the parts together to build the bomb, put it on Hitler's plane. We had the pilot. We had him right where we needed we him. We had everything set in the final turn. The Gestapo. There was a knock at the door. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know what? How satisfying a loss. Yes. And it's rare to be able to say, man, we lost that game, but what a story, what a satisfying play. And yet it did that. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's one that it peppers in some history, peppers in some mm-hmm. fictional characters, but still it holds pretty much true to what was going on. It makes it a fun game. Uh, I think I mentioned it at the time there where there's a solo game, McKee which is very similar where you're picking up different pieces to build bombs, to put out propaganda against the Nazis. And this seemed like a bigger version of that, a multiplayer version of that. Really, truly enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. You know, unlike so many of the games that we review, this one did not get sold. And I want to emphasize, I don't sell games because I don't like them. I sell games because I don't need more than that regular rotation of like 30 or so. This one is in that rotation. I've had it on the table a few times this year. It's a challenging game, but like I mentioned, when you lose, you can't help but want to get it back on the table. And that makes it so satisfying when you win. Very much so. Scott, I take it this is one that you're recommending. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely recommend it for Black Orchestra. Absolutely. Obviously, there's some need uh, for your table to join in on the theme. I I suppose there are gamers who, oh, it's a war theme. Meh. World War II doesn't interest me. I I guess there's no forest critters here. There's no beautifully illustrated birds. It's gritty. Yes. And the stakes are high. But you know what? I think that's why we love it. (laughs) Scott, you know what that music means. It's time for Adventures on the Horizon. This time we'll be looking at upcoming Kickstarter Davy Jones Locker, The Kraken Wakes. Now, this is anticipated to come out 2022, and the designer is Zachary Jacob. Let's start with a little theming from BGG. Something is lurking in the depths of Davy Jones. You've heard the stories. Ships being ripped in half by a giant creature, maelstroms swallowing ships into the sea, and dead sea creatures washing ashore with strange markings. The tides are changing, and not for the better. The stories have struck fear in even the most fearless of captains. They've decided to band together and prepare for what evil may be waking. Choose your ship, make sail to the ports, and gather everything you can to ready your ships before it's too late. <laughs> Didn't we already do that bit with the deep voice and then the laugh? I think so, but it it works so well. I, it does. It does. Okay. So, okay. So, what we're going to be doing today is a bit of a first impression. As I had the chance to play this with Zach, and it was admittedly going back a, a month or two. This game plays almost like two games in one, or at least there's an act one and then an act two. So we're going to go, Scott. I'm going to talk about what happens in each portion of the game. Okay. All right. All right. First portion, you're going to be moving your ship about a map that depicts various ports and waterways, and you're primarily looking for ways to upgrade your ship. Now, I'll I'll pause here, actually, and and mention uh, there are a handful of different ships that players can pick that provide each with a different personal player board with inset slots, beautiful artwork, and details for the ship's asymmetric abilities in Act 1 and in Act 2. So you're going to have your own player powers and your own stats based on the ship that you're playing. 
Back to this main board, you got a simple hex-based movement with a port in each corner of the board. And Zach said, well, I had to put them in the corners because I wanted to incentivize people to go from, you know, move about the board. So you couldn't just leave the port, go right back to it, leave the port, go back to it. You're going to travel this map. You're going to be collecting items and crew and ideally leveling up your stats. Namely, that means your haul, your repair, your attack, and your sail, as you might expect. You'll be exploring shipwrecks and visiting markets. And you know what? It's all well implemented. And the artwork on the cards that you're collecting, it's top-notch. But make no mistake, the first half of the game is sort of like the let's tell the story of leveling up and getting ready because it is all in preparation for Act 2. All right. In Act 2, you're going to use a separate hex board, which uh, might be the opposite of the main board in the final production copy. But again, having played only on TTS, I don't know what the plan is. The board represents a whirlpool with a Kraken head miniature in the middle and eight tentacle miniatures at various positions throughout the hex board. It actually emulates, okay, there's a Kraken under the water. Here's where the tentacles are shooting up. Really cool. Essentially, your second act is the showdown between the players and the Kraken. Players are going to be rolling dice, trying to destroy tentacles, and ultimately the Kraken. While the Kraken hits back, repositions, regrows tentacles, and, and don't forget, you're in a whirlpool. So the player ships, there's a game mechanism by which after each round, player ships are going to be getting constantly spiraled around and sucked in closer to the Kraken. It is intense. Let me tell you, the second act is intense. It feels like ships can and will be sunk in the second act, but Zach added a mechanism by which other players can save stranded crew and even included somewhat of a mini game for the sunken player by which they can allocate points each turn to attempt to help the other surviving ships. So if you and I are going up against this Kraken and I get sunk, I get to use a board that gives me a little mini game to play where I can move these meeples along the ship deck, like the, the wreckage, in an attempt to help you. You take a few meeples, they start on one end of your sunken shipboard, and on your turn you can divide up moving X number of spaces with these meeples. And the further away they get from their start position, the better the bonus you can provide to the other player. I really appreciate that there was some care put in to make sure that if you get sunk, you're still playing mm -hmm. the right. game. Ultimately, players are going to win or lose based on if they beat the Kraken. Now, looking at this and seeing some of the pictures... It looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. A lot of the artwork reminds me of one of my absolute favorites, Nemo's War. It really oh, looks yeah. like it. It almost looks like it ought to be an heirloom game. It just really, really looks great. Now, how long did the game take whenever you played it? Uh, our play took roughly two hours, including the teach. And I think that's probably going to be about All par right. for the course. And that, the two hours for what it's worth, it was about half and half. The first, act one was an hour. The leveling up and getting things together, telling the story, reading some narrative, uh, really enjoyable sort of an exploration narrative game. The second half, which we'll call it a boss mm -hmm. battle, that took the entire second hour of our play. There, It's not like a flip a few cards and it's done. It right. is a relentless, merciless <laughs> onslaught from the Kraken. It, it was actually really hard, but about a two-hour playthrough. Now, I hear your adjective and adverb-laden explanation of everything here. Onomatopoeia. Yeah. <laughs> I see the art and components. They look great. <laughs> what was the gameplay like? 
Well, art and components were great. You're absolutely right. Adventures, I'd encourage you to have a look at this on BGG because, um, well, the artwork. Scott, you said it. You compared it with Nemo's War. That's uh, that's you know tool, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. So that gives you an idea of the league in which the artwork is in. The gameplay, I'm a little bit torn. Okay, follow me here. I enjoyed the first half of the game with the traveling around, the leveling up, but I think that portion of the game is going to be most enjoyable for players that like to imagine the story of their ship and they can picture the mass going up and down the waves Mm -hmm. and acquiring these items, preparing for the inevitable. The second act, it was engaging for the sake of the intense combat. Quite the juxtaposition from the first act, to be honest. I loved loved the tentacle minis and the movement around the whirlpool. But where my holdup was, Zach was performing the game maintenance, like where the ships go based on wind changes when we're in that whirlpool. And I haven't gone back to the rulebook, but I can tell there is a little bit of work involved in determining the positioning of all the ships as the whirlpool spins. I also got to say, this game was hard There are eight tentacles plus that Kraken head. We managed to take out two tentacles and then one of us sank and then the Kraken regenerated a tentacle. (laughs) It's like, oh my goodness, we didn't just lose, but we we barely got to him. Now, that's probably just luck of the dice and luck of the draw in our play. And I'm sure that the game's going to have multiple modes where you can make it a little bit easier, a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like the showdown with the Kraken, to me, gameplay-wise, it was a bit lengthy. I mentioned before, it was an entire hour. I think some folks are going to love that. For me, I'd be okay with like a 20-minute romp with some dice chucking. Uh, But it was about half of our playtime. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are people that enjoy the tactical combat, but there aren't as many options in this version of combat as you'd expect from a game that's like – there are boss battle or board games where – There are so many options because that is the entire game. This one had a few more limitations than you'd expect from a fully fleshed out boss battler game Mm -hmm. because this isn't that. Only the second act is. So as I said, I'm a bit torn and that's simply because there are two different games at hand. First, a gentle exploration and then a big grandiose boss battle. The torn part, I think, is because I haven't played anything else that explores both of these aspects so extensively. Uh, I mean, most dungeon crawl games or narrative games, they're going to have a finale of sorts. But in Davy Jones, that big fight, that finale, that is half the game. Mm -hmm. We've gone through a large gamut of games here. Easy, hard, difficult. Who would you Mm -hmm. recommend this game for? Well, I think it's going to land with a group that wants a climactic finish to their game. Uh, With the first portion being simple enough, uh, you know, it, it... it's not a casual mm-hmm. game. It's right around midweight. And I thoroughly enjoyed my play. I think that if you're the person that likes a narrative game with a big climactic finish and you enjoy a large scale, drawn out, lengthy boss battle combat, right. boy, this is going to be right up your alley. Right now, the best recommendation I can give is give it a look. They have a ton of pictures on Instagram. It's going to be live on Kickstarter soon. And quite frankly, I think it's one to keep. Yeah, I've seen it uh, pop up quite a bit on Facebook and things like that. And it's drawn me in with their pictures every single time I've seen them. Well, maybe we'll have to ask Zach if we can't get another play with this one. Join him on TTS and play while it's going live. Keep your eyes out for Davy Jones Locker, The Kraken Wakes. All right, Patrick, I think we've pretty much shot our bolt here and it's time to move on. But before we do that, we always have to take a look back and see how we leveled up. 
So I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to grab mine here first because I know yours is a special one here. You got it. I was at camp. Camp with my in-laws is uh, tense at best. That sounds like torture. (laughs) But um, it was a lot of fun this time. And I ended up that the one night I had two of my nephews and my one niece. And my niece is 16. And she brought up asking about Mm -hmm. D&D. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I sat down with them around the campfire, and I just kind of made up a Mm -hmm. quick impromptu type of scenario where they went into this town, and they started finding all these rats everywhere. It was just so much fun with them making this up as we went and having them make their decisions of where they want to go, what they want to do. It really opened up their imagination, and they were saying things I was never expecting for a dude. Working together, searching things out, and it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience see them do this. So I got to sit down here now, and I've got to make up a whole scenario. I've got the starter box and everything. Oh, you gave them a taste. I'm going to do it. We're going to set it up, and I'm going to start playing D&D for the first time ever, really, playing it with my nieces and nephews. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful time. I, I'm hoping it is. Now, you had a big one. You were traveling as well. Yeah, I went to New Jersey. My brother got married, and I had the opportunity to be the best man at a wedding, which I've never been before, and I can't imagine that I ever will be again, but a lovely time was had by all. I like to keep my level ups gaming related in this case. Yeah, you can't trump that. So, brother got married. Good times in New Jersey. Scott, I think we're going to leave it there. We've gained enough EXP and wisdom and dexterity for one episode. Adventures, thank you so much for joining us for episode 65 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Scott, you want the last word? Hey, I think one of the biggest things here is that I can think of a toast that I would give at the Renaissance Festival. Oh. May you live as long as you want, but not want as long as you live. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.